Amen. You may be seated. So in your bulletins, I've listed two uh, scripture selections. I'm just going to read the first one today, but I encourage you to jump into Psalm 50 if you have a chance. Um, So I'm going to read from Hosea chapter 5, verses 15 through chapter 6, verse 6. Listen now for a word from God. I will return again to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face. In their distress, they will beg my favor. Come, let us return to the Lord, for it is he who is torn and God who will heal us. He is struck down and will bind us up. After two days, God will revive us, and on the third day, he will raise us up, that we may live before him. Let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. His appearing is as sure as the dawn, and God will come to us like the showers, like the spring rains that water the earth. And what shall I do with you, O Ephraim? And what shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes away too early. Therefore I have hewn them by the prophets, I have killed them by the words of my mouth, and my judgment goes forth as the light. For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. This is God's word to us. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Good and loving God, thank you again for today, and thank you for this time together. God, I pray that whatever words we would hear would be yours and not mine. In Jesus' name, amen. So I'm going to offer some unsolicited advice to y'all. If we are ever in a pandemic again, do not move, okay? <laughs> don't move from your home. If you have that choice, if you have that ability and that power, do not move. And I, I don't say that because we regret moving here in the middle of a pandemic. I say it because it's a nightmare. <laughs> it's awful. <laughs> and, and this is not just for me and Pastor Sarah. It's for, I think, anyone that was in transition during that time. I mean, the whole world was a mess. So we, we came from Montana, and then we, we found a place over in Morningside on the east side of town, and then we moved to the northwest part of Detroit after that, and, um, you know, at the time, Sarah was, how many months pregnant were you, like 27 or 28 months pregnant at that point? <laughs> 34 months pregnant at that point? Like, just ready to pop, if y'all, if y'all remember when, when we showed up, I mean, it was, it was time. <laughs> And uh, I think Naima was due November 27th. Do I have that right? We moved into our new home on November 22nd, 21st, six days before the due date, (laughs) Um, after already moving one other time. And um, we we got into the house, and we loved it. Everything was great and fine. And I think two or three days later, the sewer started backing up. (laughs) Because, of course, you know, you buy a house, something has to go wrong right away, right? Or else, what else would it be? So uh, the sewer starts backing up. We're able to like contain it a little bit, but it ended up getting really, really bad so that the day before Thanksgiving, 
We had standing water. Nothing was working. It was stinky. Sarah, again, was you were 44 months pregnant. Is that right? It was, it was 82 months pregnant at that point. And she was really, really struggling. <laughs> and I was really struggling because we're stressed. We're starting a new job. We got a baby on the way. We're trying to move into a house. We've just come across the country. I mean, oh, I was overwhelmed and needed to take a deep, deep breath. But I didn't have time to take a deep breath. I had to go to Home Depot because I was playing the role of plumber. Um, I, you know, no one was really answering calls for plumbing services, and we didn't really have the cash to pay, like, an emergency plumber to come out, and so I thought, well, maybe I can fix it. So I went to Home Depot, and I got a snake and some Drano, and I was going to tackle this thing by myself. Well, as I'm coming out of the Home Depot by our house there on Seven Mile in Wyoming, there's a guy that's got a, he's got a table set up, and he's selling perfumes and cologne, he's selling bags, t-shirts. Um, he, he had all kinds of stuff out there. And as I'm walking out, I'm kind of in my own world thinking, how am I going to fix this sewer? And he looks at me and he goes, he kind of barks it. He was like, hey man, you going to buy something? And I, I'm just thinking, oh, I'm, I, I not have time for this. This is, a, this is a really big guy. He's probably 6'6", six, six, huge, huge, very muscular, uh, very imposing. And I stopped for some reason, I just, I looked at him, and I said, dude, I don't have anything to give you, all right? And then I just start offering him my life story up to that point. <laughs> I was like, I just moved across, you know, the, the country. I came here, and then we had to move across town, and I got into this house. My wife is, what were you, 104 months pregnant at that point, and she's about to have this baby, and I, you know, and now my sewer's backing up, and she can't take a shower, and, blah, you know, I'm going on and on, just dumping on him in a way that, you know, probably was a little immature of me, but I, I was, <laughs> I was overwhelmed, and, and, but he listened, <laughs> like, like he heard me, and then it was his turn to go, and he goes, well, I really appreciate you sharing that, let me tell you my story, and he starts to say, he, he says, I lost my job in the pandemic, I don't have anywhere to go, all I'm trying to do is get some money so I can get my family a Thanksgiving meal. And I'm out here, and I'm trying to hustle these things, and, and no one is listening to me. People are ignoring me as they walk by. No one is stopping. No one's paying attention. I feel invisible. I feel desperate. And then he stops, and he gets this kind of look in his eye, and I'll never forget it. And he goes, and I'm thinking about doing something so I can just... Maybe go to prison, and that would be easier. I'm thinking about doing something that I know I shouldn't do because I'm frustrated and I'm angry. And I was like, man, having a wife that's 200 months pregnant <laughs> and a sewer that's backing up is not the worst thing in the world. He told me he was cold. He told me he was hungry. He told me he was tired of begging people to buy his stuff. We talked for a long time. I told him I was a pastor, and I told him I was like, dude, seriously, like, I do not have anything to offer you right now except my business card. And I gave him my cell phone, and I said, you can call me, you can text me. Um, on Monday, the church will be open. We've got an open-door program. I think they'll be able to help you out if you come down. Uh, ask, ask for Trish, or you can ask for me, Pastor Garrett. And we talked for a long time, and I listened to his story, and I, I don't have time to go into all the details, but... Um, at the end of it, 
he looked at me <laughs> with tears in his eyes, and he opens his arms up really wide. And I, got, I actually got kind of scared because I was like, oh, gosh. And he gives me just the biggest bear hug and picks me up off of the ground, <laughs> you know, which always feels great as a grown man to be lifted off the ground. <laughs> and he says, thank you. Thank you. I don't know if he ever called Trish uh, or the open door. Uh, I didn't hear from him after that. I don't, I don't know what he's doing. But in that moment, I realized he just needed someone to see him. He needed to not be invisible. He needed to not be speaking words that were just echoing into a giant void where apparently no one cared about him or his needs or his concerns. He just needed someone to see him, and apparently I did too. I think we've all been in a, some kind of situation like that. Maybe we have not been so desperate as that. Maybe we haven't had a wife that was 250 months pregnant and, and a sewer that was backing up. Maybe, though, we felt lonely. Maybe we felt pushed to the side. Maybe we felt ignored. Maybe we felt like we didn't really matter to anybody. Maybe we felt pushed out. When the temple was first constructed for the ancient Israelites, it was constructed really for two, I, I would say two primary reasons. Um, and, and I'm kind of paraphrasing, I'm going to fly fast and loose through some biblical history here, but the two primary reasons that the temple is established. One is for the worship of God, so that the people can have a way to interact with God, to offer sacrifices, to offer prayers, but also to come together as a community that believed in the same God and to have a way to connect. The other way that the temple was supposed to function was, was really to redistribute the wealth of the community to those who didn't have a whole lot. And the idea was this, was that no one should have too much and no one should have too little. And it did a pretty good job at first. You know, people would bring their sacrifices to the temple. And these sacrifices sometimes were off limits. Like you weren't allowed to eat all of them. You weren't allowed to redistribute all of them. But for the most part, you were. And so what would happen is people would bring their offerings and their sacrifices of gratitude, of, uh, for all kinds of different reasons, just to thank God. And they would give them to the priests at the temple. And then the priests would sort of store them up and save them for lean time. And, you know, the, the, uh, the priests were, were sort of attuned to the needs of the community, and people would come if they had needs, and, and, and they would give back to those who needed it the most. And this is really how it's supposed to work. It's supposed to, one, help the people worship God, but also make sure that the community of God's people are taken care of and thriving. This is also the reason that the law is given to Moses at Sinai to build up the community of God's people. Well, fast forward a few hundred years in biblical history, and things have kind of gone haywire. And the temple is not functioning the way it's supposed to function. Yes, people are still showing up to give their offerings. Yes, people are still showing up to give sacrifices. But it's not really being redistributed the way it's supposed to be redistributed. And so what happens is this whole generation of prophets is sort of raised up and sort of emerges from the ether, if you will. And, and, and they arrive on the scene, and you can hear them saying, 
essentially, I think, the same things over and over and over. And those things are critiques of the temple because it's not working the way that it is supposed to work. The temple is not doing the thing it's supposed to do. And, and what they're saying is essentially a version of Jesus' message to the religious authorities of his time. You know, Sabbath was created for humankind. Humankind was not created for Sabbath. The law is given for the good of the people, not the people given for the good of the law. The temple is built not so that it can be served by others, but so that it can serve and build the community. And this is really what people in the temple then had gotten backwards, apparently. They're not redistributing wealth. They're hoarding it. They're not caring and seeing the people that are pushed to the edge. They're actually seeing those people as burdens, as problems, as weights on the system, as leeches almost. So there's no compassion. There's no love. In fact, people aren't even really seen as people at that point. They're just a problem to be taken care of or to be put on a bus and shipped somewhere else for someone else to deal with. You hear what I'm saying? The temple had become, in the words of Paul Tillich, demonic, like a demon. And what Paul Tillich says about demons is demons are concerned for themselves. They're turned inward. They only care about themselves. They only exist for themselves. They only do things that will help and benefit their way of being. They don't exist for others. And Tillich sort of puts the idea of the demonic against what's holy. And what's holy, Paul Tillich says, and the temple is supposed to be a holy temple, right? What's holy, Paul Tillich says, is the thing that points beyond itself to something greater than itself. So the temple pointing toward the community of God's people that surrounds it. But that's not what's happening. And so these prophets, or we might say poets, raise up and begin to critique the system. And I was, as I was reading this this week, I was reminded of something James Baldwin, the writer, said. Um, he, he said that the reason that Plato in his Republic, the, the philosopher Plato, um, the reason that Plato never wanted poets or prophets in his Republic was because prophets and poets, by definition, are disturbers of the peace. They're disruptors of the system. They're the ones that make you see the thing that you would rather not see or look at. They're the ones that hold up a mirror for all of us so that we can get a good idea of how we really are in the world. So these pop prophets show up and they start saying things like, God does not require sacrifice. Which is saying to the temple, the reason that you think you exist is not the reason you think you exist. God requires not sacrifice, but steadfast love. Love. Does anyone, do y'all remember this, the song, You Make Me Feel Mighty Real by Sylvester? Anybody? Often called the queen of disco. I'm seeing, I see one hand in the back. Loretta, thank you. I got a few. Okay. 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 
So Sylvester is often called the queen of disco and has this wonderful song that I heard the other day at a concert. Um, and it's called You Make Me Feel Mighty Real. Now, I'm going to read you some lyrics. I'm not going to sing them, okay? No one wants that at all. But I'm going to read these, and I would, I would encourage you to find the song if you can and listen to it. But, but, but listen to this. Listen to this. You make me feel mighty real. You make me feel mighty real. Oh, you make me feel mighty real. You make me feel mighty real. I feel real when you touch me. I feel real when you kiss me. I feel real when you touch me. I feel real when you want me. What I think that Sylvester is pointing out is that through the act of love, when we are seen and noticed and then touched, whether in romantic ways or otherwise, when you are seen and you are touched, you are noticed, you become human and real. Something inside you ignites. Think about, think about the people in your life that love you. How do you feel when you're around them? You feel important. You feel noticed. You feel like you matter. You feel like your, your voice is heard. You feel like, no, if I have a concern, it's going to be heard. I don't have to worry about being pushed to the edge. I don't have to worry about feeling like a burden. I don't have to worry about being a problem for everyone because I have more needs than others would like me to have. You just feel loved. You feel real. You feel the way that I think that God wants us to feel. Seen. Noticed. Touched. And human. I'm going to invite uh, Pastor Sarah down to do a demonstration for us. And um, while she's making her way down, I want to say one of the, I think, one of the most successful things that we've done since we've arrived here at Fort Street has been uh, our premarital counseling with our, uh, the, the wonderful wedding couples that Loretta sends our way. And um, it, it, premarital counseling is actually required uh, in, the, in the Presbyterian Church. And um, so often folks are busy and they don't really want to do it. <laughs> it, feels, it feels a little tense. And so we've sort of adapted it to make sure that we're teaching people just practical skills for connecting and communicating. And, and we're not relying on our own wisdom. We actually follow this guy named Dr. John Gottman. And uh, he's often called the love doctor. And John Gottman wrote this book called How to Make Love Last. And it's essentially uh, all of his years of research combined into figuring out how do the people that have been married for a really long time, no matter how they identify, how have they cultivated love over that period of time and made their love last? And we take them through a lot of his findings and teach them some skills based on that so that they have some sort of infrastructure as they start their life together to make sure that they're cultivating love. Because one of the things we tell them is, you got a lot of feelings right now, and you're in the honeymoon phase. But trust me, that's coming to an end. <laughs> it's coming to an end. And you're going to need to cultivate those seeds of love. And so one of the exercises that we do is, is teaching them to connect at the end of the day because, you know, so often what we do in life is as we're connecting with those that we love, whether it's a romantic partner or otherwise, is we kind of talk like this, like, hey, how was your day? And then we're off maybe doing something else. 
We're not looking at people. We're not noticing them. And, and you might still be communicating, and I'm not, I'm not saying you're a bad person if this is how you communicate. Um, this is how we all communicate. Or sometimes it's like, oh, hey, how you doing? Welcome back. And then you're sending a text, and you're kind of like listening sort of half-heartedly, but you're not there. But there's always something that's mediating or in between the space between you and the one that you love. And so often we forget to stop and look and connect. And so we teach this one specific exercise that seems to be very, very successful at making couples cry. <laughs> in fact, so much so that I, I always have two packs of Kleenex in the office when I do pre <laughs> premarital counseling because they always cry. I think there were two couples that I've had that have not cried and they laughed, I think, to uh, stop from crying. <laughs> mm -hmm. And so the thing that we offer is this, and I, I'm gonna ask you to sit down. We teach them that if they're feeling disconnected, if they're feeling like something's off with their partner, if they're feeling like they haven't been able to communicate, they're feeling distant, they're feeling lonely, whatever it is, we teach them to come together and not to continue their normal communication patterns, but to intentionally break it, to intentionally disrupt it by turning to one another, knees touching, and then to look in each other's eyes. And typically, just to kind of have some fun with them, I'll just let them sit like this for like 10 seconds. Make them uncomfortable. Make them very <laughs> uncomfortable. <laughs> because we are not used to this. But in this moment, you feel a connection. You see the other person. And then the exercise we take them through that always makes them cry is we make them back and forth say three to five things that they appreciate about the other. And we tell them, you can't look away. You can't look at the sheet that we give you that's kind of a cheat sheet. To, uh, to help you um, figure out what you appreciate about your partner, because some, some people get kind of nervous, but you have to look in their eyes and say, Sarah, I appreciate your, and then you can insert whatever it is. And so may maybe we should do that right now. I hope Let's do it. I mean, I hope we don't cry <laughs> up here like this. <laughs> but, um, and we'll, we'll just do one for the sake of time. Okay. But, and I'll, I'll let you go first. So oh, yeah. no pressure. I mean, I've been talking for <laughs> what feels like 45 <laughs> minutes now, so. Okay, this is, by the way, he told me he was gonna invite me forward. I didn't know any of this, so this is not scripted or planned. This is true appreciation. Garrett, I appreciate that you are intentional with everything that you do. Thank you. Sarah, I appreciate your unconditional love and patience with me with her <laughs> I have been crying <laughs> don't look away don't I, look I away. know I just broke my own rule see and I should add this caveat we're not always great at this okay just because we teach it does not mean we're gurus uh, we teach it because we need to be reminded I appreciate your <laughs> unconditional love and patience for me and for our daughter and um, just for life Thank, Thank you. you. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> it's going to be hard to end this one. <laughs> How many times in your life, people, does someone sit and look at you like that and notice you and talk to you and see your troubles <laughs> or say something they appreciate or just listen we're missing that in the world, and we can blame technology, we can blame jobs, we can blame all these things in life, but really, really, we just have to be more intentional. We just gotta carve out that time. I mean, that took, what, one, two minutes maybe, 
and I already feel more connected. So my hope for us this morning is that we would put away our duties and our responsibilities and all those things that we think we need to do that actually just end up being meaningless sacrifices in the grand scheme of life. And I pray that we would put those down in favor of steadfast love, of noticing those around us, of paying attention to those that are pushed to the side, those that are beaten down by life, or those that just need a kind word. On Thanksgiving, my sewer had totally backed up, so we had standing water everywhere, sewage, Sarah's basically giving birth at this point. And um, we couldn't, we didn't have any appliances because it was a pandemic and appliances weren't available, so we ended up having McDonald's for Thanksgiving that year, which is one of the best memories that we have, honestly. I had a Big Mac and large fries <laughs> and a Coke. <laughs> and it was great. <laughs> it was great. And then I called one of our members, Derek Sale, and I, I told him I was going to do this, but I called Derek on Thanksgiving, and he left his Thanksgiving dinner and came and fixed <laughs> our sewer. And I think it was at that moment, like, how we felt a lot of love from that. He didn't have to do it. It's not his job as a church member, n none of that. His, w his wife didn't have to let him leave. But we were seen and we were noticed and we were taken care of. And I hope we all remember times in our life or have had times in our life where someone's done that. And I hope, too, that we remember we have the power to offer that to others. Let's pray. Good and loving God, thank you again for today and for your word. God, I pray that you would help us to love more than we sacrifice, to see more than we ignore, and to send us out to be your hands and feet. In Jesus' name, amen.